I wanted to spend some time talking about Pentecost. We talked about it a little bit last time. Yeah. And um, one of the things that we talked about, which after doing some research looked a little bit different, um, which was in, in the beginning of chapter two, um, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. We talked about the fact that we, we kind of figured out that that was the Jesus followers, you know, the disciples right. and not everybody. And that it wasn't until the, the, the actual occurrence of Pentecost that they went running out. The, the people, the disciples went running out. And so we, I talked about the fact that there was this festival um, and that it was the festival of 50 days from Passover um, to Promised Land, right? Yes. Yes. So I'm saying it, today's one of those days where I say it and I'm like, is that what I mean? Um, and- um, I have those days. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so the um, but what some of the studies say about that particular time is that the people most likely wandering around the street were um, were probably more likely immigrants. They were not there for the festival. They were there as a part of the diaspora of um, Jews finding, moving on, and finding places after the Babylonian exile. Um, and because of that, they would have been, um, Jews that spoke all kinds of different languages. Right. Because they had been all different places. Because right. they had come from different places. And I just thought that that was an interesting perspective, um, to kind of shift that a little bit from, it's not like Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem where everybody went to be registered and everybody was there for the same reason. This was a very multicultural um, time and um, not nearly the, the single purpose of coming for the festival. Um, okay. So I just thought that was interesting. I am um, going to do an experiment and uh, try to show a video and um, so we'll see we'll see how it works and we ask anybody that's watching online to be patient so just i have to change the settings this is um a video that that's about pentecost the music is just a little bit frenetic um so if you can't stand it you can all wait well you can't mute me but no anyway, turn your volume down if it gets too too troublesome okay not going to work but it's the reason i wanted to show it is because it talks about um it just kind of speaks into pentecost that in a way that is um kind of the state of our world like looking think about the disciples they're in a new place they're in a new chapter of ministry they're kind of all alone in that space and wondering like what do we do like there's all these yeah. these um conflicting 
things out here. Um, why do we have, you know, what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed right. to do it? And, um, and so it starts to make some of the parallels about anxiety, um, indecision, um, conflict, some of the things we see in our culture right now that mm -hmm. um, even that no matter how the election might have gone, we're not seeing the resolution that we thought we would see in terms of the beginning of a process of transitioning. Um, and of course, we don't know what it would have been like if the election hadn't turned out the way it is. Um, but it's kind of... Um, Hi again, Debbie. You're Why fine. At least don't worry about it. If it works, let it be. Yeah. Um, welcome. So I was just um, telling Linda, are you frozen again? I think she is. <laughs> Poor Debbie. It says connection lost. Okay. Well, so anyway, there's that. So then it goes along and goes along and goes along until then it there's this description of um, the, the experience of Pentecost is enough to kind of um, ideally unite everyone. One voice. Everybody can is kind of speaks the same language and can understand the disciples can go and preach wherever they are called to go preach and the people will understand them, even if it's not a place that they're going that's in their own language. Um, and so the 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 it, there was a sense that this breaking in of the Holy Spirit was not only for the purpose of um, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, but it was also for the purpose of all of these drastically different people um, that that act of God could possibly bring them together in one space. Kind of like the hopes that we read about in the epistles in terms of being of one mind and being all people of faith and uh, didn't quite go that way um, because people made fun of the disciples when they went to preach, people made fun of them. When they shared about their experience of the Holy Spirit, some people were very moved and brought to faith. Others just didn't believe them. They just simply didn't believe. They thought it was too, because one of the things that, um, that I was, um, let me see if I have it. I have it written down here. Um, the idea is that um, in that space that we might think about the Holy Spirit as, and we talked a little bit last week about the Holy Spirit being comforter, mm -hmm. guide, director, kind of pushing um, possibly from the back. And um, this one, this one um, Bible study person, I turned too many pages. Um, he says that, he says, I've written three or four introductions to this letter now. None of it seems quite adequate. So I'll just come out and say it. I think we've misnamed the Holy Spirit. The word Jesus used in John's gospel is paraclete, which we've you've probably heard that the Holy Spirit 
from that perspective, right? No, I haven't. I don't remember. Okay, the name Paraclete, um, which is often translated as advocate. So in John's okay. Gospel, the Holy Spirit, if in the language, is called Paraclete, and that is translated as advocate, um, and often translated as comforter. And he says, it's this second name in particular I'm calling into question is I just don't think it's the Holy Spirit's job just to make us feel better. So then, uh, which kind of goes along with some of what you were saying about being um, that kind of um, conviction. Yeah. Like, get, <laughs> get yourself Ooh. back in your right lane. Um, right, yeah. And so he goes on to say, um, yes, I know it's not that simple. The Holy Spirit as comforter eases our distress, encourages us and comes to us in times of trouble to remind us of Jesus' presence and promises. And it's just that kind of comfort, I imagine, that is at the heart of Jesus' discourse to his disciples in the fourth gospel. They were distressed, feeling orphaned and abandoned, and so needed that kind of comfort and advocacy. And then he says, well, why do you think then that I think that the Holy Spirit is misnamed in that particular description? He says, because when he looks at the Pentecost um, scriptures, he's like, what is calm and comforting about a violent wind? <laughs> right. Where does anybody find comfort in the experience of a of a wind blowing that you're thinking is going to blow your house up? Um, and, and the fire with, coming down on your head, you don't know if you're going to burn up. Fire, and if you can see them on each other, then that's scary enough. And then to think that there's one on you um, has to be. And then there's their own physiological experience of language the disorientation of the language thing um so he says um in the pentecost text the holy spirit isn't comforting anyone or anything but is shaking things up um so it's you know in in john it's kind of um different looking, but at the same time, Jesus' testimony throughout the Gospels started all kinds of trouble. You know, Jesus' way of teaching turned everything upside down. Right. Yeah. Uh, very, very different. And what he says, the Holy Spirit comes to prompt the disciples to make the same disturbing, disruptive, and world-changing testimony that calls into question the values of the world. Um, and he goes on to say, I mean, goodness, there's nothing particularly comforting about the rush of a violent wind, the descending tongues of flame. And once the disciples take their new multilingual ability into the streets of Jerusalem, pretty much everyone who witnessed their activity described it as bewildered and amazed and astonished. So the spirit didn't comfort anyone, but instead prompted the disciples to make a very public scene with the troubling good news that the person the crowds had put to death was alive through the power of God. So he goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit as agitator instead of just as advocate. Um, and nicely, what he comes around to is that it's really both, that 
to some extent, the um, Holy Spirit may be comforter in time of trouble, but may call us to be agitators or agitate us into being agitators about the status quo. That's how Pastor Tom always described an apostle. An apostle is the one that comes in and shakes things up. Uh-huh. And this person is saying that the way that happened is through Pentecost because right. Pentecost did it to the disciples or the apostles and then and so on and so on. Um, so it's kind of, you know, we talked about this lineage thing, but that goes back to that same kind of reference. Jesus agitated, the Holy Spirit agitated, the apostles agitated. Um, I don't know how many of us are still really gifted at that. Um, I guess it depends on your idea of agitating. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you describe as an example of either a place where agitation needs to happen or we've seen it happen in a good way? Like, what do you wish the world, where do you wish the Holy Spirit would stir up some trouble or stir for the, for the gospel? In our, I think in our young people. To, in, in terms of kind of agitating them to do what? I think just, let me think a minute. Like a revival for for young people, um, and because I know I was one of them, that when they got to the age of college, kind of stepped away. You know, you go away to college and you kind of forget your roots, and and I just think there's so much. So many questions and so much out there. I'd love to see the Holy Spirit shake up some of the younger. I'm talking even 20 to 30 year olds. Mm -hmm. um, but also a lot of churches um, preach the nicey nice. They preach what they think you want to hear, not what we need to hear. That just because you're sitting in this pew on a Sunday morning, yeah, you may believe in God, but like we said last week, do you believe God? Right. You may be here to worship God, but do you take that out with you? And how does it change your life? I think that's... Right. Um for, I don't know, the second half of my career in preaching, I've been a little bit more, um, I, not always, but I try to be mindful of somewhere towards the end of sermon preparation, what difference does it make? So yes. If this, yeah. doesn't, if this doesn't invite me to do anything different or the people in the pews to do anything different, which, okay, that might be the case, but then what is it? What is it? Because in some seasons, what 
you know, the there are times and places where people just need a, a sense and a spirit, a, an experience of just belonging. Like just, True. you know, you are here, you are not by yourself, we're in this mm -hmm. together. And so the, the, the change part of that would be if you believe that on sunday also believe it on monday tuesday wednesday third so there is an agitating component to it because if this is where you belong then try to belong here all the days of your life and not just on sundays right but i and, think and Go ahead. sorry they need to a lot of people need to realize it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are there's something that God wants you to be doing. Right. And I think that's what I was going to say is that when I think about when you talked about uh, young people, I think um, if I if I could, if I were to think about the Holy Spirit from that perspective, it would be um, to call people, call um, kids past high school and young adults um, to an understanding that um, they really can be the change in the world. They are not the future, they're the right now. Because I never really like to say that, that they're our future, because they're not, they're our right now. Um, yeah. While they're still kids and youth and young adults, but that if if they could, if, if they could, if somehow the Holy Spirit could move in such a way that they could see and hear the difference that they could make in the world if they put legs on their faith. You know, we've seen that in some of the movements around gun violence and racism over the last mm -hmm. number of years where um, teenagers across the land have risen up and said, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. And so I think there's a little bit of a, a flame out there for that, even though they can't get together right now. Um, but I would like to see that from the perspective of my sense that every person is called to serve. And yeah. that looks different for every single person. But even when I look at my own children, while I think there's been some changes over the years to some extent, um, I don't see in them and in some of their friends the drive to make the world a better place. They're not selfish. My children right. and their friends are not selfish, but I I just don't see them um, feeling a sense, being compelled to, in the places where they live, to get out and be sort of missionaries, not necessarily rebuilding houses, but there's just always something that people can do. Um, right. Um, and some of it may be nostalgia, the fact that when I was in high school and then through college, um, I, I just believed that was part of my place in this world, even before faith, to make the world a better place, to fight racism, to fight injustice, to, um, to do those kinds of things. I kind of took it personally. And then I found out that it fit with my faith. Um, and, um, so 
I don't know. I think there's also an, a lot of adults who feel like they can't really do anything and they can't make a difference and they can't right. change anything. And I think that I'd love to see the Holy Spirit turn that upside down. And if people could really, really see themselves, they could see there, they can do something. And I don't even like to say things like that because people have enough to do. People have right, enough to do list. Um, but if, if it's Holy Spirit driven, then people feel compelled and passionate about it. Yes. Yeah. Not like a to-do list. And, and of course you get a lot of that with the older congregations that are just coming to church every, not, not Pendleton, but the older congregations and smaller churches where they're coming to church every week, just waiting for it to die off. Right. Or they come to church every week um, with sometimes a sense of defeat, like I've done all I can, I can't do anymore. Yeah. Yes. And then I, I look him in the face. I'm like, are you dead? Because if you're not dead, God's not done. That's what I, the, the whole 18 months I was at Gowanda, that was my message for them. You're not dead yet. And I would, in, in other churches, it was usually when there would be two services, it would be the one where more older people attended. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, it was kind of a code for, don't tell me that somebody else has got to take it on. If you physically can't do it, then I believe it. But don't give me this. I've done my part. Because if people give up thinking there's no more part for them, then they then they feel defeated by their age or their inability. And just like COVID, I think it's not a matter of giving up what they bring. It's looking at how can they do it differently? Yeah. How can you still serve and be so important, even if you can't do all the things you used to do? So that's kind of my, like, you're not dead yet. And if you're not dead yet, then God has got a plan <laughs> for you. And um, so um, so this, this guy goes on, he says, paraclete is a compound Greek word that literally means to come alongside another. In this sense, the paraclete can be an advocate to come alongside to defend or counsel or comfort to come alongside to provide comfort and encouragement, but the one who comes alongside might also do so to strengthen you for work or to muster your courage or to prompt or, or even provoke you to action. That's why I think the paraclete as the one who comes alongside of us to encourage and equip us for ministry is a better name for the Holy Spirit than comforter or advocate. As you were reading that, what popped into my head was the pictures you showed during the service on Sunday of the the runners mm -hmm. coming alongside and right. helping equip you to finish the race. Yep. And it's, um, I saw one uh, in a race, it was a video where the person didn't need physical help, but I think, and I think it was further back in the race where someone recognized that this person was in the process of kind of giving up and the person took it upon themselves to be like come on don't give up don't sit down because as soon as you sit down then you're out of the race and you know so that was the kind of that's kind of the other part of that right that holy spirit thing which is 
not giving up on something and pushing and pushing and pushing until they get to where they're going. Um, so I thought that was, um, I just find the conversations around the Holy Spirit to be fascinating, mysterious. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I hope that never will I feel like I understand it all, that I figured it out. Because I don't, no. I don't think we're meant to understand that. I don't think we are either. Mm -mm. The other part of this was that, you know, the Pentecost experience is often put together with speaking in tongues, whereas speaking in tongues comes later in Acts. It's not now. It's like 12 or something like that, The what they call glossolalia, um, which mm -hmm. we understand as the gift of speaking in tongues. And I think there are people who believe that that's what happened at Pentecost, that all of a sudden everybody was speaking in tongues, but that's not what happened. And that's a completely different. Um, and we don't know if the people that were filled with the Holy Spirit were speaking a different language or if they were speaking their language and other people were able to understand it in their own language. Right. And it's in some ways, does it matter? It doesn't. That's because because I can go either way. Did the did the apostles were they the ones who when they spoke everyone understood or did they could they speak other people's languages so that other people could understand? Right, and it makes me think of general conference when you've got different people oh. with different languages and one person's talking but everyone's hearing it in their own language. That is an amazing, amazing experience um, in terms of. We can't hear into their earpiece, but when right. you see these whole delegations with their their translator things in, and you see the people in the boxes who are doing that work, um, doing doing some of that translating, and how fast they have to go, and the vocabulary that they have to have to go to, uh, you know, this page, this paragraph, this line, you know, under this head subtitle and um i have had experiences of being in a place where um where i had the translator because i was in a non-english speaking environment um mm -hmm. and it's a little disconcerting because you can hear the person but you can hear this person and so in some ways you have to kind of tune out the speaker even though you want to watch their face because otherwise you don't pay attention to the person who's talking in your ear. Yeah. But, and be amazed by it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so do you speak any other languages? No, I took Spanish in high school, but I remember very little. I took France and France, French and high school. <laughs> but then uh, in seminary, when I found myself in France, all I did was stand behind my husband. We were engaged at the time and he was in France studying French, French civilization. He'd been a French major in college. And so we had, he met our seminary group in Zurich, Switzerland and traveled with us to Italy where we were doing a Marxist Christian dialogue 
um, trip with one of our seminary professors. But then after that was all done, I went to Paris with him to see where he lived and to meet the woman that whose house or apartment he lived yeah. in. And oh my gosh, I was like, whatever I ever thought I knew. And since Matt was fluent, I just stood sort of slightly behind him and like, don't, not, nope, not gonna happen. No. Um, well, Tom Crosby's daughter speaks Spanish and she teaches overseas English. I think she teaches other language speaking kids how to speak English. So. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, one of the other uh, things that I came across when I was, there's a, a website that has a lot of um, writers and biblical commentary that's ancient and modern and different comes from different perspective. You can read John Wesley, you can read Calvin, but you also can read um, things that are more like a blog or a sermon. Mm -hmm on on something and this um this one person so as i was kind of kind of just taking a look taking a look and you click on what i don't know whether it was i don't remember who it was i clicked on not wesley and it was 47 pages i'm like man no 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 not no not gonna do it i'm not gonna read 47 pages of ancient english yeah no. um so but one of the things i did come across was a man who talks about he's he's talking about language and that the need for Pentecost and the need for it to keep happening. Um, and he talks about so he tells a story about when he was going through college, he over the summer worked in a, a vegetable packing plant and his job um, was let's see, what did he call it? He, my job late that summer season was to work the cutters. Before that, he'd been doing the corn packing. When he got to the cutters, what that meant is once the cobs have all the kernels off, some of those cobs jam up. They don't jam up, but they get stuck in the machines. Um, and so somebody has to go in and cut them out. And so that's what the cutter does. And so that was his job. And when he first got into that section, they put him on the fastest moving, the machine that had the most corn cobs getting mis misled. And the other people, he said, I carried a wooden stick for poking into the machines to dislodge the ears of corn. Every worker was assigned to three machines. It was not exciting work and it was uncomfortable because it was sweltering hot in all the protective gear and the noise of the machines was deafening. So it wasn't like there was gonna be much conversation. Still, I was on a line with six other women of various ages. The other six were Latino, members of families of immigrant or migrant workers who traveled through for seasonal work and they only spoke Spanish. So he says, and this is where it gets interesting. Now, of course, it was not only our spoken languages that separated us from each other. We were also separated by the languages of our past, our education, and our future. I was there as a college student working in between years of college. They were working this as to survive. Um, this was their food. This was how they were going to live. Um, and so, uh, 
he says one day when he, he, the, there was a woman, let's see, one woman called in sick and he was excited because he got to move down, which meant he got to go to an easier machine and a new person was put on the hard machine. And um, I took her up on it and a half an hour into our shift, the new worker was getting frustrated with the machines. And before I knew it, she and all the others ganged up on me and language differences or not, they told me I was gonna switch places with her and go back to that machine. I did not argue. And so he said, I had to smile, I, that I smiled even then to realize that probably for the first time in my life in that moment, I was not the one who was privileged. And for the first time, I think I knew the impact of the difference of language to separate and divide. I knew even then that all sorts of other languages separated me from them, ones which would take me out of that plant and temporary jobs and carry on through other places. Um, so he, he goes on to talk about how languages divide us mm -hmm. um, and not just people who speak um, what we could consider a foreign language. People speak a different language for just in the words that they use. Yeah. Um, so does that does that make sense to you? Like what comes to it, mind? Do you think it does? And because what comes to mind is I was in third grade when we moved to North Tonawanda, and I lived in Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, a water fountain was called a bubbler because the water bubbled up from the middle of it. And it was within my first few weeks at school and I raised my hand and I asked if I could go to the bubbler and all the kids started laughing and making fun of me. And my teacher stopped in the middle of what she was teaching at the moment and used it to teach that different parts of the United States have different words for things. She wasn't being stupid. She wasn't being silly. She came here from Wisconsin and that's what they call it there. That's why to teach her. And she was my favorite teacher. <laughs> I think about things like there are different languages across um, educational levels. Mm -hmm. You know that people who um, are at least college educated often speak differently than people who were not privy to having an education. Um, and it's not like one is smart and the other one's not smart because like Matt's father didn't go to college, but oh my gosh, he was one of the smartest men that I knew. And he's the one that taught all of their kids, go look it up. If you don't know what it is, you know, I'm glad to hear what you find, but go look it up. I'm not going to tell you and who yeah. watched PBS and all this stuff for forever and ever. Um, but there's, and some of that, some of that education may come with what's specialized, like if you have a specialized education. Right, like a doctor, you want to speak English. Yeah, <laughs> but for doctors among doctors, they speak a different language. They speak, right. it's, you know, when I'm, when I am once or twice a week down at Roswell and I'm in a meeting with the palliative care doctors and fellows, if they're 
there are parts of their conversations that you can't make any sense of because they're talking mm -hmm. about measurements of medication and pain levels and scales and all kinds of stuff. And we often struggle, people often struggle with their physicians to talk to them as though um, they're smart enough to understand, but don't expect me to have the clinical skills. Exactly, right. Like, uh, you know, you have cardiomyopathy. Okay, what's that? Right. What does that mean? You get it, but I don't. Um, and, and there's regional, you know, people, mm -hmm. people in Boston talk differently than people in New York City and Chicago. You just take all the major cities and people in South Boston talk differently than people who are not in South Boston. And I'm picking some of the what we would consider from upstate New York to be pretty specialized because there's the their accent is so significant. Right. But Alabama. Um, Wisconsin, you know, the, mm -hmm. the some of the Dakotas where things are far more um, Swedish or Danish or something like that in terms of the terminology. Um, it's but I think that part of where he was going in this is how language separates people because it's not just the language that we speak, it's what that language, where that language comes from. So for these immigrants or these migrants that he's talking about, the fact that they can't speak English kind of puts them over into a different category. Mm -hmm. And so he's like the college guy. So there probably could be a sense of him thinking he's better or they think he thinks he's better or them thinking less. Um, the, the languages when we first, when Jordan and Sarah first started dating, um, they, one of the things that, that was shared was that while Jordan and Sarah had traveled some in college, they were still in college, um, that Sarah's parents had not had an extensive life of travel, that they had not traveled like uh, Jordan and our family had traveled, and we were just very fortunate. And so there was a sense of, there was a sense of in his suite and innocence asking us to be careful about how we presented ourselves and that the conversation wasn't about um, the trip to Mallorca and the trip to Saipan and the trip to here and whatever, because there's a sense that it gives a sense of better than. Right. Um, and so I wonder how do we put that into this place in the history of what was going on in this time in terms of um how how might the the different groups of people the different backgrounds of people um how might that have been a right time for god to send the holy spirit does that question make sense um 
kind of like with everything going on here within our country. Yep. Really ripe for God to send the Holy Spirit. And I could see if they were going through, I'm sure they didn't have probably the uh, politics, but you know, you talk about them being immigrants, and I think about everything the immigrants here are going through, and you know, the whole DACA upheaval that was going to be happening, and and the whole six hundred kids whose parents we don't know where they are. Right. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um. And our own division around some of that. Um, perceptions of right and wrong, percent perceptions of right faith and bad faith, you know, yes. that they're, that in some of the, I'm increasingly reading that, that we are at religious odds almost as much as we're at political odds right now. Yes. Yes, we are. I, I that's that, why I put that on Facebook that day. I just felt like God was nudging me. Jesus isn't right or left. He's our center. Right. He's not a donkey or an elephant. He's our lamb. Right. And, it's and we're trying to put him on one side or the other. Yeah. And there's, I think there's been some memes over the years that showed or cartoons that with the Statue of Liberty being kind of pulled, pulled yeah. apart or trying to be pulled in a variety of directions. And I think that, I think we're experiencing that happening in our, um, in the religious world. And when mm -hmm. I say religious, I mean across religions, not just Christianity. Right, right. And um, a number of years ago, because my, my mom passed away in um, nine years ago and my dad was in 2007, but um, before, I think it was even before my dad passed away, they were talking to somebody from their church and um, my younger sister and her husband are Democrats. And someone from my mother's church actually said to her, well, then she can't be a Christian. It's like, really? Yeah. And that's, um, it's, it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand the power of division and how the power of division turns into statements and expressions that are sort of um, expressions of hate. Yeah. That that, yeah. that that sense of, because and essentially what that is, is it's ignorance that you can't mm -hmm. be a Democrat and a Christian at the same time. Right. Um, and, or that for some people that being a Catholic is also a Christian because a lot of people, there's a lot of people that are like, oh no, no, they're not Christian. Oh yes, uh, they are. <laughs> you know, one, one woman, well, I used to be Catholic and now I'm a Christian. Really? Um, and I understand what they're talking about, but at the end of the day, um, Christian is Christian. And yes. we're losing losing a little bit of sight. Coming from a person who's I'm not prone to cynicism. So I don't like to I don't like to be like 
the sky is falling, the ship is sinking, can't do it. It's more, um, there's a, a deep anxiety and trouble rumbling in our, yeah. um, and it's gotten right into our, not into our churches as much, but into the religious world of conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to somebody once and their um, father was Lutheran and they were raised Catholic and her father um, had had a stroke and wasn't doing well. And mind you, she knows that my father was a Lutheran pastor. And she says, I am just praying for my father's conversion. I said, why don't you pray for his salvation? Like if he doesn't convert to Catholic, he's not going to go to heaven. So I'm praying for his conversion. It's like, right. Yeah. And it's, um, I was with a patient once and they were talking about how, and this is a little bit different, but it's um, the sense of how we look at our faith next to our religion. And that mm -hmm. was this person attended mass every day and um, didn't care so much about in-person confession, um, but that that it's his religion that was going to keep him safe, not his faith. That going to church every week was what was going to save him, um, because if you didn't attend church, it was a mortal sin. And you know, I was with him for a while, and then I was like. I didn't say anything. I just talked with him. But in my head, I'm going, where's the believing in Jesus part? <laughs> because yeah. it's not like Catholics don't live a life of believing in Jesus. Um, so right. I didn't, I didn't quite understand that other than he had been raised from the day he was born, Catholic schools, Catholic training, and um, literally went to mass every single day. Yeah. And he did it out of fear of hell. Mm -hmm. um, and a really nice man, but just kind of, um, I think that. So this idea about Pentecost, um, I think that, I mean, I personally, when I was looking at this, I'm thinking, wow, we are really in the need of Pentecost. Yeah, we are. And some of the, some of the people that I was looking at, they were talking about the fact that that really that that this this may be what we're reading about, even though there's mention of the of Pentecost back in Joel and in other places, this particular description of Pentecost is kind of stands on its own. Um, and but the invitation is to consider the fact that it wasn't the last one, that there may have been places where something like this has happened um, on a much smaller, not, I won't say smaller, because the reality is we're not talking about a big city and thousands. Right. Um, but it's a big event in scripture. And so the, um, if we think about places where there have been dramatic breakthroughs in people finally being able to see and hear each other who disagree or who are from different cultures and 
we're finding common ground who's to say that that's there's not a pentecost in that um yeah i like to think of that i like to think about sort of mini pentecosts um and it's um um so the other thing in my research that i found interesting was that the description is that Paul had done really well in converting Gentiles. Mm -hmm. He was very successful. He did very badly at converting Jews, which, and that that was where, when he talks about some of his struggles, that that was one of those. And that also, even though when we read Hebrews, it wasn't about Paul, um, it kind of was another reinforcement that some of the focus was on keeping the Jews who had converted and getting Jews to convert um, because that was a very difficult crowd of people. Right. Um, and you think about it and one reason Paul might have had problems converting Jews is because he was the Jew going around killing the Christians. So. It's, yeah, I could see where he might be better off trying to get the Gentiles. Yeah, to get the people that don't know that story. Yeah, um, right. And, and next to that, I think that because even my own experience in the in in growing in familiarity with people who are Jewish and practice their religion, is that it is it is not just their religion. Um, it's not just their faith in God. It is a complete, and I don't mean just because they might be conservative Jews who practice all of the Sabbath rules and all of that. It's more that if you go to a synagogue, you are very likely to hear commentary on the state of the world. If you, um, some of the, 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 rites and rituals and holidays and holy days in the Jewish tradition have some level of justice or mm -hmm. um, things about them that are not, it's like you can, they can put the news and the scriptures of the Old Testament together and have a, um, a service at the synagogue of, that, that incorporates all of that you would very rarely hear that decisions about how to live. Um, there's just, it's just a different kind of culture. Of course, there are Jewish communities like the Hasidics who separate themselves entirely from the news and the global culture, but right. um, it's far more of a lifestyle than I think that in terms of overall belief system about the world and um, things in it, as opposed to in the Christian um, communities, we tend to kind of put it in here, like it's not all the way around. Mm -hmm. we know it's, it's not that that's not how it's meant, it's just that from a verbal presentation, um, we're not gonna bring the, the morning news into the pulpit. We're not going to, um, discuss the state of Israel, um, Israeli-U.S. relationships in from the pulpit. 
Um, and so to and there historically with the everything rules about everything from eating to worship to how you dress to where you can go to the role of women and children and what a temple would look like that is a deeply ingrained culture kind of goes back actually to what i was saying about a roman catholic um but Jews have been around longer than Catholics. Yeah. But it's not, it's not as simple as just believing in Jesus because their religion is so tied up with the whole way they live their life. Right. It's a way of life. Um, one of my sister's best friends who grew up around the corner from us um, met and fell in love, love with a Jewish man and she ended up converting and she lives over in Tel Aviv. I think she's in Tel Aviv now. So, yeah. When, once in a while, I'll message her and say, what are they saying about us? <laughs> and what does she say? Anything interesting? Oh, it's been a while. I don't remember what she said. But, um, it's, it's interesting to um, read some of the authors that I follow who one of whom is in Canada, Canada. She's Canadian and she's a Duke professor, but because of COVID and not teaching in person, um, she went back to Manitoba where her family is. And she's has um, cancer and has been on special treatment for several years that keeps her going, keeps her alive, um, but she can't be exposed. You know, that, right. that would be pretty devastating to her. So she chose to go to outer Mongolia of Manitoba, Canada and stay safe. Um, and but talking about what it's like from a Canadian perspective to watch the United States is. Um, they pray for us a lot. I can imagine. Of course, one of the memes was you wonder if Canada feels like their downstairs neighbor is a meth lab. <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't heard that, but yeah, <laughs> there is some truth to that, um, <laughs> that kind of terminology. Um, oh my golly. It's, it's crazy. Who would have ever thought? Um, I know. So let's look at Peter, starting in verse 14 of chapter 2. Um, and he's trying to explain um what's going on and so um how about do you want to read the first it's 21 verses but it's not really that long no it's not then peter stood up with the 11 raised his voice and addressed the crowd fellow jews and all of you who live in jerusalem let me explain this to you Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, what do you think that, where is he, where is he trying to take them? Do you have commentary that talks about it? Um, yes. Says Peter told the people that they should listen to the testimony of the believers because the Old Testament prophesies concerning Jesus and it had been completely fulfilled and that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, the day this was Peter both bold and humble. No matter what sins you've committed, God promises to forgive you and make you useful for his kingdom. The, um, part of what um, mine talks about is that the, in 17, verse 17, in the last days, mm -hmm. um, and that sense of, you know, that this is the second coming, that we are near the second coming and that these are in fact the last days. Um, and so the visitation, the, the, the references from Joel, when you now read about the fact that Joel talked about blood and fire and smoky, mine says smoky mist, um, mm -hmm. sun to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord, Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved is, kind of a second coming kind of a description. So it's not, um, most people think that find that the, it's, he's not referencing uh, um, Joel like per word, but the overall message is that the day of justice, the day of reckoning um, is coming very soon. Um, one of the really unusual things is that talks about um, he talks about the outpouring the pouring out of my spirit upon all flesh sons and daughters mm -hmm. slaves both men and women um, that's a kind of an unusual privilege position of privilege to put women in in that yeah and in in my commentary down at the bottom it says at pentecost the holy spirit was released throughout the entire world to men women sons daughters jews and gentiles now everyone can receive the spirit this was a revolutionary thought for first century Jews. yes and it's interesting that in pentecostal churches and some assembly of god churches can fall into that kind of wider care category um they, people are often surprised that in the Pentecostal background that there are women clergy. I don't know that they call mm -hmm. them clergy, but women pastors. Um, yeah. Because they have 
they have believed in um, this partly this particular scripture that says it's everybody. It's not just men. It's not just the apostles, the 12 men. Mm -hmm. um, it's everyone. And yeah. so the, the other thing is that essentially what, where Peter's going is that he's, he's being prophetic. He's talking about what's going to happen. Um, and which is, you know, how we look at the prophets and how we look at prophecy. Um, and now he's going to go back to the most recent past in 22. You are the is our Israelites. Listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders and signs that God did through him among you. As you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, now this is very interesting, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. So it kind of is, does make it kind of pointed that he's talking to Jews. You did it. Right. <laughs> um, but God raised him up, having freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Um, and my my particular um, commentary doesn't say much about those particular parts of this this reading about the the what David said. Do yours? Mine says everything that happened to Jesus was under God's control. His plans were never disrupted by the Roman government or the Jewish officials. It's especially comforting to those facing oppression during the time of the early Christian church. And then it says, um, Peter spoke forthrightly about the resurrection. As he preached the events of Jesus' death and resurrection were still hot news less than two months old. Mm -hmm. So his ex Jesus execution had been carried out in public before many witnesses. The empty tomb was available for inspection, just a short distance away. That's if interesting. He, I don't. I, have you have you heard before that timeline of two months? No. Hmm. Well, we know it couldn't have been so very long because that they were all still there. And well. Yeah. Because Jesus had been around with them, hanging hanging out again for right. forty days, right? It's true. It's true. So, yeah. And we don't know. He told him to go wait, but we don't know about how long between his um, ascension and Pentecost it was. Right. Yep. So, I mean, two months. Two months in our calendar might have been about right. Yeah. Um, Mine says the heart of Peter's message is that God raised Jesus from the dead 
and made him humanity's rightful Lord and Savior. Throughout the rest of Acts as well, the Holy Spirit-empowered apostolic me message continues to narrate Jesus' resurrection and announce that he is Lord. Breaking off Joel's quote with everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he later picks up in later in chapter two, as many as the Lord our God invites. We'll get to that. Peter explained what it means to call on the Lord's name. The one at God's side is the risen one. Um, and although some Jewish people may have expected Gentiles to enter new lives in Judaism through baptism, Peter summoned his hearers to turn and embrace the Lord's name by baptism, to be baptized. Um, and so what does he say? Peter recognized that one cannot depend on ancestry or ethnicity for salvation. That goes back to some of what we talked about the Jewish, how the Jewish people and they how they do their lineage and mm -hmm. um, where the lines are of, of faith. Um, and that's that's quite an interesting because then it goes on to say, as the saying go today goes, God has no grandchildren. Yeah, I've heard. Have you heard that? Yes. I have not heard that. Yeah, I've heard that before. And how would you interpret it? That we are all God's children. Right. Nobody gets the second hand. I mean, for for grandparents, there's nothing better than being a grandchild. Right. But in what 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 he's saying is that no one gets secondhand salvation. We all get it firsthand. But also, if you think about it, grandparents don't do the nurturing and raising mm -hmm. like a parent. Mm -hmm. Right. And we don't give birth to them. So right. if spiritual birth comes through baptism and redemption as um, the experience of a personal experience of faith or however we describe it, then then that's God's doing and God does the raising just like a parent. Right. As opposed to a grandparent. Um, and so it's quite um, how does Let's see, 29 through 31. Can you read that? Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Hmm. And a lot of people don't realize that, yes, David's earthly throne did die off. But through Jesus, the throne is again filled for eternity. Right. Through yeah. David's lineage. 
Right, the lineage thing. We keep coming back to that, how important that lineage is. And, yeah. Um, and then one of the other things as we go on that that speaks to the fact of this proximity of time, this Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. So we know the apostles were, and we know that Matthias, the new one, was because that was the criteria for picking him was that he had to have witnessed the death and resurrection so is 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 peter talking to the general public or is he talking to the people that lingered around the campfire after all the excitement died off that night um i'm not really sure um because i'm sure jesus didn't just hang out did he just hang out with them for those 40 days or was he out and about well i think that they're talking about even before that because they're talking about the you know that in general so much of jesus life happened around jerusalem right very big place it's still not but it sure wasn't back then um i mean it's very big comparatively speaking so if people there's a good chance that most people who were around jerusalem would have heard of jesus and certainly the crowds that were drawn that they talk about on palm sunday leading up to the the crucifixion would have been known by a lot of people right um so being therefore exalted at the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he has poured out this that you both see and hear for david did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Does yours say that, you, you crucified? No, it doesn't. What does yours say? It did earlier, um, but... In 36, how does yours end? Therefore, just... Therefore, all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. Oh, yeah, it does. This Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Just oh, put it. I, I just love, I love Bible study because I, I don't think I've ever read that and noticed that before. How pointed it is. You. You did yeah. that. I mean, he there's an acknowledgement that this was meant to be. It's not like they are, he's not acting like the people he's talking to are terrible, awful people, but not hiding any thoughts about what had happened. Hmm. The Romans might've been the one to do the action, but you're the ones that said that it should be done. Right. You were the ones calling, crucify him, crucify him. Well, and in the um, the role that that Judas had, the role that some of the Pharisees and Sadducees had, mm -hmm. 
Um, and he wasn't handed over to the Romans right away. Right. Um, he first was tried sort of by faith mm -hmm. um, and then and then by law. And so very definitely the the Jewish hierarchy when was Herod, right? Who said, I'm, I'm done. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, yeah. can't help you anymore. So you're going over here where the Romans had no problem following through on the execution. Hmm. Um, let's look at 37 to 42. How about if you read that? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom are the Lord all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They were just coming in groves. Yeah, and so obviously the audience that he was preaching to was big yeah if there were three thousand converts um in this first first round um, right and so would our perception be that uh when he says when they first heard this they were cut to the heart and said to peter you know what do we do do you think that is their sense of taking responsibility for what happened to Jesus? That's how I read it. That's how I read it too, that he's being so pointed about, you did this, you know, you're the ones who crucified him. And I mean, if I was, boy, if I was sitting there, I would be cut to the heart to think that mm -hmm. while they physically didn't lay hands on him, they participated in him dying, which would have been a terrible right to experience um and it's um it's also the the message of forgiveness right repent yeah and that that is also a pretty foreign concept mm -hmm. um because i think that historically the Jews, they're, they struggled. They struggled with understanding that God let them try again and again and again. Um, but there was no, no sense of anybody saying, um, if you do this, if you believe and be baptized and repent, you'll be forgiven. Um, you don't have to go get a goat and sacrifice it. <laughs> and it doesn't, they don't even, they're kind of moving into a place where they're, they don't even say that in this particular 
um, they typically do talk about, you know, animals and sacrifices. Right. Um, and, but I think the sense of a community who collectively owns the death of Jesus, understanding, as I said, none of them had any personal hand in it. Um, and they're accepting the responsibility. They're calling themselves guilty um, and to be offered baptism as a sign of that forgiveness. I, I can imagine that why there would be all those converts. Oh, yeah. They, um, they hadn't known forgiveness for murder before. Mm-hmm. Eye for an eye. There, it's you know a breaking of the commandments, and and historically breaking the commandments is not. I know you didn't mean it, so it's okay, which right. is not what repentance is either. But it there wasn't a sense of if you break the ten commandments, if you come back to the temple and you're sorry, then you'll be forgiven. We don't really hear that. Um, God never takes away love and never and never stops um, caring about and for people. But here we are with a brand new realization. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away from far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So if it's everyone our Lord calls to him, how do we connect that? Who does God call to him? I mean, if we translate it into our sense of, is it who God calls to him that are saved by baptism? And are there people God does call and doesn't call? Well, that brings up the whole, if you're baptized as an infant, but you turn away from God, and... It just is mind-boggling sometimes when you think of all that. It is mind-boggling. Um, and, you know, while these stories are um, pretty much all the stories in the Bible are baptism of adults. Right. The power to and the ability to repent and right. accept and be forgiven. Um and the baptism of infants came from a completely different place in a different era. Um, and what baptism became more of a protection than a, a conversion. Right. And, you know, we know that if someone's converted, whether they're baptized or not, if someone's converted and professes their belief in the Trinity, then um, there's a, not much clarity in the Bible about what you would have to do to lose that. 
Right. Um, and because people wander away all the time. I mean, that's that mm -hmm. happens. It doesn't mean that they give up their faith. Right. Um, maybe they have a temporary crisis of faith. And honestly, we don't even know the people we maybe even had heard. I've never heard anybody say something deeply a statement that that is a statement of deep conviction in terms of rejecting um god people i've heard people say i don't even know if i believe or i'm not sure or i might have stopped believing but if they talk long enough it they often have not stopped believing they've stopped it's being connected and if somewhere lost come under seeing either false preaching or people not living up to what there's all kinds of reasons why people right don't. um the, and the thing we'll never know is are they truly turning away or are they turning away from the practice of religion fortunately it's not my job above <laughs> our pay grade great <laughs> to be in the business of shaking people by the shoulders and really really are you sure though you want to <laughs> so sometimes sometimes i would more want to be like don't you remember don't you remember that you know this is this is what you this is where you found hope and faith and because most people find themselves in a place of professed disbelief are often pretty hurt there's a yeah. lot of anger in there I think it's covered up with a sort of a bravado of the heck with that, you know, I can't be bothered. Um, they, um, so it's, um, so we'll, when we go on, we'll go on next week with, well, actually we're not going to meet next week. I need okay. to that, that we're not meeting next week. Um, and um but when we come back then we'll be looking at what that what that conversion how they grew in their faith what that community looked like after all of those conversions and how they kind of stuck together um and some of the patterns that were developed in terms of what a new church looked like that we we would love well, we would especially love it now that we're experiencing COVID. Yeah. Um, the, the ability to sit around and share a meal or mm -hmm. coffee or things like that. Um, how are you feeling about the changes that we're seeing going on around us with COVID? With the numbers going up? Mm -hmm. People just do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And it's um frustrated, you know, wondering if any day now they're gonna say, well, pack up your stuff and work from home again. Right. And that's, you know, in the city of Buffalo, they've moved to Orange, which means right. that um a lot of the a lot of the personal care businesses, uh, barbers and things have to close. Right. Well, our office is in the city of Tonawanda. 
which is also the orange. So, yeah. And I think myself and Sarah, who's the other woman in the office, are the only ones that don't live in an orange zone. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Tom, 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 they all live in orange zones. So, like, Scott lives in an orange zone. And mm -hmm. Scott, and he, his church is in an orange zone. Right. The size of their church, they're not greatly affected by it. They um, can only have 25 in worship. That's his so. church is really small. Yeah, so I know. I've seen small. it. It's beautiful. But, but they, the building is not small, but the congregation right. is small. There okay. are other two congregations that meet there are bigger than 25. And he said that's there's a there's a fairly good chance that those other two congregations may have to go virtual. Yeah. Because they they wouldn't be able to well, and we talked about well, what would we do if Pendleton went to Orange and we would only be allowed 25? Well, we would have to close the building. We can't right. we can't pick 25 people that are allowed to come. Although I said for those of us who have to preach, it would be nice to have 25 people there. Or but that that 25 would include you and Pastor Scott and Pastor Sherry and Sue and Adrian. So now you're down to 20. Right. But we were we were kind of saying in a somewhat of a light way that it sure would be better to have those 15 because it really would be like 15 to 18 people in the sanctuary when we're preaching than having nobody. Yeah. Because most of the time what happened over the summer was that the um, the band practiced and then they left. And then sometimes Sue Wasayowitz would stay and sometimes she and Sherry, sometimes it would be she and Sherry and Scott and then um, Adrian. Mm -hmm. um, but then... I think that their history had been that when they were recording prior to Scott's and my arrival, that there were many times where they had to start over um, because whoever was preaching might not have been happy with how it went and they would stop and go back. And so the audience, so to speak, gave some of that feedback. Once it was stopped, then you talk, then you start over. And um, Scott and I are both sort of a one-shot deal. You know, we're gonna, the, we're not likely to start and stop. And so we then gave um, Sue and Sherry the choice. You can stay or you can go. And it just depended on what they had to do as to whether they did stay or go. So there were a couple of times when it was me and Scott and Adrian. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think we did the best we could given the circumstances, and that's. I think you all did great. Um, I think you did great. It will be, I think, helpful for some people that if that happens again, at least we're not strangers anymore. Right. Yeah. But uh, Louis says that the numbers um, that even in some of the places that have gone to Orange, that the numbers. He said what he saw was that the numbers were stabilizing. 
over the last few days. Doesn't mean they're going to stay. They've still in that zone, but they haven't. They haven't done this. They're. Oh, uh, from what I saw, they were doing this. Well, what he meant was that this increase had been okay. dramatic, and that just this week, these Monday, okay. Tuesday, Wednesday, that it stayed level. It's still staying level at a bad yeah. level. Right. But, uh, who knows? but Thanksgiving hasn't hit yet. That's what, what scares me. What are you going to do for Thanksgiving? Well, in the past, it's always been my husband and myself and either one of my sons or both my sons, depending. Um, but this year, it'll probably just be the three of us. And I told my um, younger son, I'll leave it up to your discretion because he's a nurse. I said, if you want, I'll pack you a to-go meal and you can pick it up or you can come over and we can wear masks and you can um, visit for a while. But he's out at Niagara County Jail and they haven't had any cases there. Interesting. Yeah, he's a nurse out there. Right? Kind of like, like almost like a Petri dish you would expect and then it would be terrible. Yeah. Well, so far, none of the other employees have picked it up. None of the guards or anything. So. And then no inmates? And no, they test, I believe they give all the inmates a test as soon as they come. So, but he said there hasn't been any so far. Hmm. So, we'll yep. see. But it's, it's, um, I only have one sibling in town and we haven't gotten together for, I know it's sad to say, but we haven't gotten together for holidays in a while. So. Yeah. And my other siblings, I have two down on the Eastern Shore and my brother lives in Texas. We're going to do Zoom this oh, year. And, and maybe we will do something like that. They um, were supposed to be having our, just Matt and I and our son and his significant other on Sunday doing Thanksgiving. Um, and partly that was because on Thanksgiving Day, I volunteered to be on call at Roswell because their their chaplain chaplain was taking Thanksgiving off, and yeah. um, and I wasn't going to take Christmas, so I was willing to take Thanksgiving, which doesn't mean I have to be at the hospital. It just means I have to stay within driving range, um, so I yeah. couldn't, couldn't be in Rochester on Thanksgiving Day. And so then it's possible that Matt and the dog will come out on Thanksgiving Day. We'll see. Yeah. You know, part of it is he he will have to make the decision about whether he wants to come, given the fact that I could be called away. Right. It Even if I were, it would take a couple of hours probably, and he could watch football or something. But yeah. We'll see. Um, I hope it's not all lost because you know unlike some people we're doing stuff that's really safe um and it would be nice to be able to do that but we can't until um marty's uh till jules gets her covid test back okay so it's um it's a journey and it is Marty and Jules were supposed to go out to Cleveland and meet Charlie this past weekend, but because then Charlie was exposed. Um, Ohio has pretty loose and loosey goosey rules. 
right. Katie in Arizona, as soon as she was exposed and knew she'd been exposed, she told the school, you automatically go on two weeks of quarantine and right. test out. It doesn't matter if you get a positive test, you have to stay out. Her husband had to get out of work um, and quarantine for two weeks, whether he's positive or not. In mm -hmm. Cleveland, where Jordan was exposed and he had a cold, the um, he basically only had to go home until the symptoms went away. It's positive wow. or negative. <laughs> Gosh. Wow. Um, it is amazing. And and then, of course, when you look at Ohio, Ohio's like a lot of red, a lot mm -hmm. of red in Ohio. And some of this is probably why. Sure, you can come back as soon as you're, as soon as you can smell and taste again. Come on back. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, oh my gosh! Wow. Yep. Anyway. Scary. So as long as I'm like I'm having Thanksgiving food, I don't care if I have to make it. I, mean, I don't have any problems making it myself and enjoying it. I'm gonna have and stuffing and mashed potatoes and maybe vegetables and leftovers. Right. And leftovers and some kind of pie. There you go. <laughs> um, de December 9th, I will not be at Bible study because the bishop is meeting with laity. Oh, right. So and do, you, do you think that do you think that the other laity from our church know like the CLMs and stuff like that? Do they know about that? If they get the newsletter, they do. But maybe I'll. Maybe I'll um, send a, an email to all of the um, CLMs and lay servants in our yeah. district and make sure they know. I about think that might be a good idea because they might get them, but they might not read them. They because you right. have to kind of look down to see, and you have to figure out which which group you're in and um, stuff like that. So it wouldn't hurt to send them out, send out a, a quick email saying, "Just want you to be aware." Yeah. Because I figure if, since I'm conference director now, I better attend it. Uh, I would say that that's true. And yeah. If it's anything like the clergy one that we had, um, it was really nice. It was really wonderful. Yeah. So, I really like our bishop. I, I think he's good. But he's also the only bishop I've known. So. Well. And and he, they're they're they each have had their own gifts and things that are yeah. wonderful about them. And one of the things that one of the reasons it was so wonderful when he did the clergy one was that he he came acknowledging that he himself did not know what what we had to do. I mean, he wasn't, he didn't have to. Right. So therefore he, he wanted to offer the um, sort of devotional was about finding joy. And there was conversation about finding joy in the midst of, of what we've been through, but there was also this kind of quietness, openness. Yeah. Um, on his part, um, he didn't he didn't come with an agenda um, other than offering a pastoral presence. Um, and I think that is not that's not 
sometimes his typical style. He he reaches out, right, and is a is a close up kind of bishop when you're with him, um, but you'd have to be like sitting around a a fireplace. But even then, he'd be thinking up new ideas. When we were in the cabinet and Becky Sweet, who's at Kenmore, yeah. He was the um, extended cabinet minutes and I was the appointed cabinet minutes and when he first came meeting after meeting after meeting Becky had to these lists you know talk about this and talk about this and talk about this it was things and things and things and this came from here and this came from here and my job with the appointed cabinet wasn't was rarely like that except for during appointment season yeah um, because he's just an idea generator. He's an apostle. He's a yeah. shaker upper. And um, so this was, so it was just very kind. And I don't know what it'll be like with the laity, but I'm sure the kindness will be there, whatever it is that he does. You mentioned Becky. Um, it was, I think it was August of 2018. I did my first in church funeral at Pendleton, where one of the members there, um, Pastor Tom was going to be on way on vacation. So um, her family asked if, not one of the other pastors, but asked if I could do it because Ellie was part of my Bible, my Monday Bible studies. Like I said, it was my very first in church funeral, and it's really crowded. And in walked Becky, and I am like. Oh. No. <laughs> and because how, Ellie, how did Ellie's, she connected to Ellie? Um, Ellie's used to belong to Kenmore, and Ellie's sister and brother-in-law still attend there. So she came in support of Cindy and Mike Turner. Oh, so yeah, I don't know if you know their names, but um, I know they're pretty active. But and then Katie was there. Katie was because Katie was knew Ellie from. Kenmore. So Katie oh. Zettel was there and yeah, Bill and Ed, Jean Edmister were there and it's like, oh man. <laughs> but it went okay. That's a good thing. And that's that's great affirmation. If if they felt it went well and you felt it went well, then hey, you're off to a great start. Yeah. When the I family, came, yeah. When I came to Rush, there was um three retired United Methodist Church pastors who attended that church and their spouses. And then there were um, a few people, the clergy on the team. And it was, but it was the first time that I had more than one retired pastor in the yeah. congregation. And it was like, okay. <laughs> no pressure here. Some of these people are people I've known for a really long time, but never was I in a role to kind of be their pastor. Um, yeah. So they were, it was wonderful. They were great. Um, very yeah. supportive. That's awesome. So, all right, well, let's pray. All right. Oh Lord, the needs are many, both in our congregation and those dealing with death by car accidents and um, just, these these deaths where people are just like gone from people's lives and so many people need your comfort and lord we 
need your comfort and encouragement as we look around at people getting sick and cases rising and and lord we're also kind of grieving that thanksgiving has to be different that so many families won't be able to be together and so we we pray that people will make safe choices and that thanksgiving will be a time of really giving thanks for life and for shelter and for being able to even have our families in the room with us in some new and different way. Keep us and hold us and be with Dan tonight as he's recovering. We pray and give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye -bye. Got a wave. <laughs> Bye. Bye.